Welcome to Liberty in America, Past, Present, and Future with Dr. Bill Joby. Doc is a historian and a reenactor. On this show, you'll hear his thoughts about our personal liberties from their earliest recorded beginnings. You'll also be transported back to the 1750s to relive the life of Colonel George Washington and his adventures during the French and Indian War. Let's get started. Here's Dr. Bill Choby. Hey, here we go again. Dr. Bill Choby calling. Uh, we're discussing liberty in America, past, present, and future uh, topics that were described within my book. And this chapter, uh, this discussion has to do with the amendments to the Constitution after the original Bill of Rights was passed and how it affected uh, personal liberties and the personal lives of all Americans. Uh, the, uh, the first major change in what we saw in the Constitution with the amendment, the 13th Amendment, was passed shortly after the Civil War ended in December of uh, 1865. And it had to do with the abolition of slavery. And to be uh, totally fair to you, I'm going to read this to you, a quote. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Now, if you recall in our past conversations where the original intent was to abolish slavery, uh, the idea that we were self-evident that all men were created equal, and how those um, the slavery was abolished in the Northwest Territories, the Ordinance of uh, 1787. But yet, when the Constitution was being deliberated, of course, they had Southern states, which had a significant population of uh, slaves. They also had indentured servants, uh, particularly from the uh, the Irish that came over when during the time of the potato famines. And a lot of other immigrants that came to America and in, in, uh, in indentured servants. Uh, this the, the accessibility of labor uh, to do a lot of the menial tasks had a great deal to support the economy of the South. Now, the there was also another consideration here at the time is that the Spanish were in Florida, and there were some uh, concerns about the uh, potential for them to invade north into Georgia and uh, the Carolinas. So when the Constitution was made um, or decided, there had to be some compromises. There was a compromise on both sides from the issue of slavery. The the one was that uh, dear to the sheer, um, the, or the abolition of any laws prohibiting slavery until after 1808, uh, gave the southern states an opportunity to um, uh, work something out. And at the same time, the, the compromise was that three-fifths of a man would be counted, uh, three-fifths of uh, a man who's a slave would be counted as one. So the, uh, the intent was to prohibit the southern states from dominating the issue by having larger populations through the House of Representatives. So it was a compromise on both ways. But the, obviously, when we get into the um, the major changes in the agricultural uh, picture of the South, when we got away from tobacco farming, which was uh, very uh, uh, intense labor and very skilled labor in order to create a, a, a profitable harvest, uh, that changed with Eli Whitney's uh, cotton gin, and cotton became king in the South, and to pick cotton was a pretty simple task. And so just a lot of uh, labor was used uh, with that was uh, not highly technical. So the, whatever um, 
uh, could be done to keep that economy alive was the intent during the period after the Constitutional Convention and after 1808 up to and including to the what happened with the uh, Civil War in the South. Uh, just briefly on that, um, the Southerners believe it was a war of Northern aggression. Uh, the, they believe that the that it was a tax issue and that the industrialized North was uh, taking advantage of the South and it was in that case being uh, unfair to them and they resisted these uh, these issues by increasing their trade with the British for manufactured goods. And, of course, it created uh, conflict and division. But we know what happened Fort Sumner, which was a tax collection office for the feds, and, uh, and they are off and running. But later on, Abraham Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation issued right before the Battle of Antietam uh, was to enlist the, uh, to get the slaves who were, supposedly uh, in the South, which they legally declared was not a part of the Constitution. Therefore, Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation was uh, was not considered lawful in the South, but there was a, a very effective tool for rallying uh, the support of the abolition of slavery. All right, all that being said, we set the stage now after the Civil War is settled, and we see that there's uh, the states quickly ratified uh, the amendment number 13 to abolish uh, slavery and indentured servitude. But that's the backstory on what was happening at the time. And it's important to keep this in consideration is that the, the idea of slavery was not so much just to make the Southerners rich, but it was, it was also uh, an attempt to stabilize an economy that was still growing. And it was an, a, an issue of national security with the Spanish, as well as the, um, uh, uh, the increased uh, the technological advances of harvesting cotton. So it wasn't just about one man uh, controlling another. And incidentally, I should say that the first uh, African-American uh, slave owner in America was a black man himself. All that aside. So we have gone through that. And it's, it's now um, uh, illegal to hold slaves. So as they continued on the role of reform after the Civil War, there was also some other things that were um, had to be dis, uh, dis, discussed and, and settled, and it had to do with the um, the 14th Amendment. Now, mind you, we have these, this federal constitution, we have these amendments to the constitution, and they say this or that, whatever's protected. But there's no real way for the states themselves to be forced to comply with the federal constitution. The states had their own constitutions, and they had their own ways of doing things. But if they were if they were in a state... Uh, it's, it's conceivable that the, the federal constitution would not be extending, those rights would not be extended to those individuals there. So as a result of this, the 14th Amendment, then it was ratified in July uh, of 1868, and it uh, essentially says, and I shall read it because it's important for you in understanding exact terminology, uh, Section 1, uh, Article 14, uh, Amendment 14, all persons here or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, and property without the due process of law, nor deny any persons within its jurisdiction the equal protections of the laws. 
So with this, uh, the ratification of the 14th Amendment, now we're looking at uh, federal constitutional freedoms in, stri- in, um, in the um, Bill of Rights as extending to every citizen, no matter where they lived, as long as they were within the United States. And this is a huge step forward in nationalizing the Constitution. And in many ways, um, and you know, also it's important to note, it's, uh, to uh, no person will be deprived of life, liberty, or property. Again, reflecting the idea of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness as described in the Declaration of Independence. So here, the spirit of uh, the Constitution, the spirit of uh, America 76, uh, carried forth through here to this too. But it's, it's, a, um, it's a big step forward to now people who are living, say, in the, uh, the distant uh, states, they could also claim that they had free speech protection from the government and uh, the free expression of religion, etc. Now, following that, here's another one that would made a change, and this had to do with the uh, rights of uh, blacks to vote. And I'll read that to you. It was ratified February 3rd, 1870, and this is a... a uh, section one, the right of the citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. So now the previous uh, slaves could vote. And these were all amendments that came out of this after the Civil War. But they also, but the right to vote was limited to males 21 years old and older. Uh, now, the next amendment, it took a while before the next one came along that really had any kind of effect, but it was a profound effect that came on the average citizen. And this is, was the um, the 16th Amendment, which had to do with the levying of income taxes. Now, let me read this to you. Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever source derived without apportionment among the several states and without regard to any census or remuneration. Now, that sort of sounds sort of crazy, but it's a very important point because the Supreme Court was, um, they were going back and forth about this tax issue, about whether or not a direct tax uh, was, it was, of course, a violation of the original Constitution, which said uh, indirect taxes, such as excise taxes and, and tariffs and things like that, was the way the federal government would be funded. But now with direct tax, there was a question of, well, if you have one state contributes more than another, did they get the same amount back? It was a matter of dividing up the the, the loot, if you will. And because of the, con- uh, the conflict in the Supreme Court decisions, they um, came up with a solution that uh, the federal government basically would get all the money and then they would decide how they'd uh, they distribute it without uh, any particular uh, formula that, uh, that they could contrive for, uh, you know, based upon population or whatever have you. And there we go, the off and running. Originally, that tax was sold as one that would never be higher than the 1% uh, or 7% on the highest income and 1% on the lowest. But everybody paid them, you see. And But then again, you got you know the election of President Woodrow Wilson coming along, the first progressive, and he saw an opportunity to raise a lot of money for World War One. So that was the, you know, the question was national defense. We all have to get together and solve this problem. So tax rates skyrocketed. And ever since then, we've been paying the price for this constitutional amendment. And by the way, it was passed under dubious and, and late at night kind of of uh, deliberations that are still contested to the day. But it became a form of uh, it, it morphed into more of a the, probably the most intrusive uh, hand of federal government and personal lives and any other matter that we have. But that was the 16th Amendment. 
Now, the uh, the next amendment had to do with, and this is the 17th Amendment, and this directly affects individuals because, uh, well, let me read it to you first. And uh, this was ratified April 1st, 1913. It's Article 1, Section 3 of the Constitution's Amendment. And the Senate, the Senate of the United States shall be composed of two senators from each state, elected by the people thereof, for six years, and each senator shall have one vote. The electors in each state shall have the qualifications requisite for electors of the most numerous branch of the state legislators. All right, so prior to this time, senators represented the interests of the states. They were not directly elected by people because there was a, a necessary check and balance to how the federal government worked. Now, whenever the uh, this amendment was passed, it was because there was allegations that uh, the state's uh, legislatures were playing games with the with the politics, and there were different people were being appointed who were who really shouldn't be in government. And so you can imagine what what people were saying about it. So they they proposed this, but what happened in the process of uh, this debate was that the very important role that the states played the states themselves, the government of the states, played in keeping the rest of the other um, branches of government in check. It was a necessary check and balance. Now, let me explain it this way. Today we have a Senate that basically is, well, it's elected, but they have, have approved expenditures and they have approved bills that would not have passed had the state's had the choice in selecting who was going to make those those uh, votes in the Senate. Do you think we'd have a $31 trillion debt if the Senate was uh, represented by the states rather than by the voters? Uh, so you see, it's so easy. When you get into the election process, and having been there myself, I, I was a candidate for U.S. Congress several times. It's a food fight. It's just really what it boils down to. It's a food fight. And it's uh, it has nothing to do many times with the best interests of our country, and we can see that today with all, some of the things that have happened with the during the COVID uh, epidemic and and some of the wild expenditures under under the idea that uh, somehow the government was going to save us from ourselves. That wouldn't have happened if we had a Senate that had senators selected by conservative states who would say, "Look, we're not going to do that." But instead, we have this razor-thin majority in the Senate based upon elections, and with elections, as I said, it's a food fight, that have often nothing to do with being a, uh, a controlling or a balancing factor in the in the federal government. And well, we're paying a price for it. The um, election of uh, um, Senator Fetterman from Pennsylvania, who ran on an abortion issue, which had nothing to do with the uh, state's interest because prior to that the u.s supreme court said it was a state issue the matter was settled it's up to the states rather than leaving it there had we had the 17th amendment senator fetterman from pennsylvania would never have been elected senator he would never be a senator because it's just common sense it's like there's that issues off the table and because of his health and that sort of thing his local uh uh, the legislature, state legislatures in Pennsylvania would have seen that he was just not physically capable and qualified to run for that office or to be a senator. But yet, because of manipulations of the these elections, the food fight that goes on over, over issues, over money and things like that, 
gave us a senator in Pennsylvania, which really is not has not been physically capable for over six months since his election. And it's sad. But, you know, the bottom line is that the whole country suffers because of this process. And the 17th Amendment was responsible for that. So actually, that should be repealed. But if you can get people to understand that it's a necessary check and balance, but if the $31 trillion debt doesn't uh, stand out as being important, then it's hard to say anything to anybody that's going to change their mind. But that's the 17th Amendment, uh, 1913. 18th Amendment, this was uh, in 1919. And this had to do with the uh, abolition of of booths. But it wasn't the... um, abolition itself you could still well let me read it to you and this is condensed after one year from the ratification of this article the manufacture sale and transportation of intoxicating liquors within and importation thereof into or the exportation thereof from the united states and all territories subjected to the jurisdiction thereof for beverage purposes hereby prohibited that means you can you can make your own you know moonshine or you can make your own wine they, they couldn't stop you from drinking it but you just you could not manufacture or sell it or uh import it transport it whatever and we know what happened with that now obviously booze is a big problem in 1919 uh world war one is over uh there's a lot of celebrations um but whenever the uh, federal government got into this with this uh, and there were well-minded well-meaning people particularly women's temperance union who pushed a lot of this sounded like a great idea but you know the the, <laughs> the result of it was really it's a sad story uh, in order to make the booze uh, uh, a poison uh, the federal government would uh, would put denaturants into the booze and as a result of it many people in large cities died from the poisoning of alcohol by our dear government and of course 1933 that was repealed but then we also created organized crime and uh, among other things it's just it's sad sad story that and it was uh, you know highly virtue-minded people that did this which is fine to some degree but when you're dealing with the liberties of all people, whether they're not necessarily virtuous, but they also have certain rights under the federal constitution that we have to be aware of. And uh, this is an example of what happens when extremism uh, becomes a law of the land. Now, the next amendment, the, the uh, 19th Amendment, and this has to do with uh, this had to do with the women's suffrage. Now, prior to this time, Women could not vote, and uh, as a result of that, they they obviously objected, and they felt that they were not being represented. And let's mind you that uh, you know women do have much to contribute to uh, society, and, and including to our constitution and law. The um, in a way, it's it was it's it's a sad thing to believe that this actually went on as long as it did, but it's a good thing that they finally did have a voice. And that was uh, 1920, and and that is Amendment 19. The right of the citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States by any state on account of sex. Now, incidentally, I just wonder how that plays into this transgender stuff, (laughs) whether that still applies to them, whether they'll know whether they are sex or not. Um, That'll be an interesting argument before the Supreme Court. I'm sure someday somebody's going to bring that forth. Uh, the next amendment that uh, had to do with personal freedoms, this it really 
uh, had, it's this is the Twenty Second Amendment, and it's uh, Section One. It's a condensed version of it, but the real impact of it's here. Section One: No person shall be elected to the office of the president more than twice. Now, George Washington set a precedence uh, when he only served two terms, and that was honored throughout all that prior history. When FDR came along, he sort of threw that out. And FDR was a very progressive kind of uh, president. Instead of um, following the traditional approaches of, of governance that was established all the years prior to this, he decided that he was going to make some changes, changes such as packing the Supreme Court so he could get his way, uh, stonewalling legislation where money would be allocated and spent and then later on um, declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. And but the you know the task was already done. He was um, what saved FDR was World War II. I mean, this this guy, he <laughs> he was allowed to do what he did because our press uh, looked the other way, and in some ways they were agreement to him, but particularly because of uh, what was going on with the Depression and what was going on with the the uh, the Dust Bowl days of the 30s and just overall malaise. It, uh, he capitalized on the idea that the government was going to come in through using Keynesian uh, economic theory, which is basically the government's got to get their nose in everything before it's going to work. We know now that it doesn't work that way, but that's what he did. And by uh, he didn't finish out his fourth term. He, he died, but then uh, followed by uh, President Truman. But the damage was done to the institution and what it did, it laid the pathway uh, that many feared would become a uh, president for life kind of thing if it wasn't stopped. So the uh, amendment, uh, 22nd Amendment, was passed in February of, of 1951 in response to FDR's uh, refusal to follow the American uh, traditions uh, set by George Washington with the president. Now, the next amendment relating to freedom, this is one that's the 24th, and it is well, the right of citizens of the United States to vote in any primary or other election for president or vice president or for senator or representative in Congress shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state by reason of failure to pay any poll tax. 1964. I remember those days. I remember seeing on black and white TV where they were, were having, uh, they wouldn't let people vote unless they paid a poll tax. Well, this is nothing more than Jim Crow stuff. And it uh, really hurt the minorities because they didn't really have, uh, you know, as much money to throw around as, say, other people who who had the cash. But this is what was going on. And, we, and it basically, uh, it was to, to stop blacks from voting. Uh, now, the next amendment, that uh, relates to freedom. Uh, this has to do with the 26th Amendment. This was ratified in July of uh, 1971. Again, something I, I do remember. I was in college during those years. Section 1, the right of citizens of the United States who are 18 years of age or older to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of age. The idea was that uh, if you were old enough to fight in the war at that time is Vietnam and, and not necessarily popular one, but one that could have been won if it had not been for the media meddling and uh, the uh, um, major mistakes by President uh, Johnson, uh, who incidentally started uh, tackling or, or digging into the uh, Social Security funds in order to fund part of that war. Uh, there, there were uh, 
demonstrations all over the country of, of uh, young people who wanted to say on all of this and this amendment that allowed uh, voting to uh, age 18 was a consequence of that. Now, there are, uh, as we sort of wind down the last couple amendments, the um, here's one, just a, a bear of note, because it was just, this was 1992 that was done. I think it was uh, Senator Santorum brought it up again after it had been proposed by Madison in 1789. And that is no law varying the compensation for the services of the senators and representatives shall take effect until after an election of representatives has intervened. In other words, they couldn't vote themselves a raise without having to face the voters. And that had uh, that affected the liberties of people because, of course, they're spending money. And if they could uh, vote themselves raise while they're in office, that meant that they were there was a greater lust for power, uh, which took away the freedoms, uh, the liberties of the individuals. So there we, we finish this uh, little discussion tonight. I'm sure you're going to have some things to say about that. Feel free to contact me. It's drbillchobysbooks.com. There's an email there that you can get to. And um, let me know what you think. But uh, these are uh, what I'm trying to do here is to give people a snapshot in a short period of time because, uh, you know, our history is long and it's taken many, many years to sort of put things together. Um, My goal is to enlighten people as to where we are today based upon some of the things that happened before in order to give people the opportunity to make an informed decision as to what kind of government they want our country to have. And that in in light of uh, a lot of what's happening with the media and uh, the left-wing progressives, uh, we need to take a stand. And I think the, the information I've given you, particularly in the past two or three sessions, should be one that you can... Uh, uh, defend the uh, the original intent and thereby preserve the liberties of Americans. So uh, thank you very much for listening tonight. Remember Dr. Bill Choby, uh, Liberty in America, past, present, and future. Remember when might is right, we live in bondage. When right is might, we live in freedom. When right becomes wrong, we live in chaos until either right or wrong uh, takes control to give us bondage or freedom. Thank you. Good night.